I want to just start off with a crowd poll. And so just a just simple, simple question uh, for you this morning is, would you consider yourself a call person or a text person? All right, so show of hands if you're like, hey, text me. Like that's the only way to communicate this day and age, okay? How about you're like, no, I still prefer the, the old school phone call. Just out of curiosity, anyone in here still have a landline? I'm just like super curious, okay? It's like super expensive to have a landline these days. It's absolutely crazy. You know, for me, myself, uh, I'm probably like in between. I, I don't mind either. Uh, I, I, you know, texting is convenient, but I'm also that person who like I'll read it and I just won't respond. And uh, that's kind of a bad habit. I know some of you are judging me. And then uh, also at the same time, too, like I just don't look at text messages. Like this morning before I came on stage, I checked that I had 62 unread text messages on my phone. Some of you just like started scratching, be like, I got to get his phone and, and, and solve this problem. This is an issue, right? And that's kind of a thing. But it's interesting because I used to like text messages because um, I have a, a different area code than, than, than the 217, yo. And what up? I don't know why I got gangster there, but I did. Um, and so I would get like a, like a lot of messages from not, and so it was easy to kind of figure out. But now like they scam call you with text messages. Did you realize this? Like they are getting so creative it's like, oh, I got another text message notification. And it's like, hey, do you like the way your, your state senator is blah, 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 whatever. I'm just like, oh, how did they get this number? This is crazy. It's hard to tell between the difference of it's maybe perhaps a, a real phone call and, and perhaps a fake one. And, and now phone calls, they do that thing where it tells you like potential spam, right? And I just, that's block instantaneously, never even pick it up unless I'm super bored. Sometimes I mess with people. I get this one from Park City, Utah all the time. Maybe it's Mormons trying to convert. I don't really know what it is, but um, I, I haven't picked that one up yet. But there's a difference between real and fake stuff, and we see it everywhere in life. Uh, in high school, a lot of you guys know that I grew up in Southern California. We would vacation across the border into Mexico from time to time. And when you're coming back into America from the border, uh, as you're waiting in these lines that take hours upon hours, uh, they'll come up and they'll sell you things. And yeah, it's hammocks, tchotchkes, but my favorite thing was to buy Oakley's. Um, like, you know, the Oakley sunglasses, and you'd ask people, like, oh, is this real? He's like, oh, yeah, super authentic. He's like, great, how much do you want for it? $2, great, they must be real. And so high school Eric then would get his Oakleys and wear them around to baseball practice or whatever and be like, those are sick sunglasses. But, you yeah, know, they're real, authentic, not even made in America, you wouldn't believe it type of situation. But there's fake everything in our world today. I mean, there's people who, who try to fake currencies. I mean, that's a thing that we're all aware of. There's fake everything, though, you can think of. Fake currency, uh, fake uh, clothing, fake jewelry, fake bourbon, fake purses, even fake news. Like, that's a thing we do. It's like, oh, is this real news or fake news? We got to kind of figure it out. You know, professionals will tell you, though, someone, there's people who are professional counterfeit finder outers. I don't know. There's probably a, a more official term than that. And they say that the way they can tell if something's real or counterfeit isn't to try to find out all the ways that counterfeits are made. Rather, they familiarize themselves so well with the real thing they can tell the difference. 
But one psychologist said there's actually something that happens, especially when people are buying fake products, that people actually don't mind it. They said this. They said many people don't actually mind something being deemed inauthentic, as long as it looks the part. Because most people are into it for the image that it presents, not necessarily it being real. And the persons harmed in the fake markets are not the owners of the fakes, rather though the owners of what is genuine. And that's kind of where we're headed this morning. There's a lot of fake things in life, fake stuff, fake goods, but sometimes people can be fake too. And maybe you've had those experiences before where a friend or someone in your family, a coworker, whatever it may be, and you've experienced a fake person. And that's not super fun to be around. I think we can all agree on that. But I think there's even something deeper on a spiritual level that sometimes we feel like it's appropriate to fake or counterfeit our faith in Jesus. And that's kind of what we're going to be headed into today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. We are in this 28-week long series going through the chapters by chapter of the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to root ourselves today. If you haven't had a chance to grab one of our study journals, We'd love for you to do that, to take notes. Got some study uh, stuff for you on your way out. But I want to pose this question. Is what's the difference between a counterfeit Christian and a real one? What's the difference between perhaps a real disciple of Jesus and one who's just maybe going through the motions? And what we're going to see today is this, and I believe this is kind of a true uh, statement, is that what separates counterfeit and real disciples is not what's going on on the outside, rather what's going on on the inside. Because it's easy to, uh, as they say, talk the talk. It's easy to put on a mask, to put on a smiling face. It's a whole different thing to walk that walk. And we know that our actions as believers come from the inside out, the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit living through us. Now this isn't a call to say in order to be a Christian you have to be perfect. This isn't a call to say, well, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and you don't have things the way they ought to be, that Jesus kicks you out. That's not what I'm saying. But in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives this short parable and he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log sticking out of your own? It's a call for each and every one of us not to examine what's going on the outside of our lives, but rather to look within ourselves and say, hey, Is my life, are my actions matching up to what I believe about Jesus and the world around me? And we're going to see in the text today is two separate clashes of people. That these uh, people who were trying to figure out faith, they were trying to figure out religion and following Jesus, and there was two clashes. One of them faced an internal clash. This clash internally about what is or isn't spiritually acceptable or not in following Jesus. And the second clash is what is perhaps not socially acceptable when it comes to following Jesus in a real way. So our first clash, the internal clash, is a pretty crazy story. And we're picking up in Acts chapter 5 this morning. You can follow along with me. Here it goes. This is, I'm telling you, this is a doozy. You're going to want to listen to this one. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, which it's like, hey, you're married, she knows everything already, so I don't know why they have to add that, but he did. He kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart 
that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land. Did it not belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. Here's where it gets crazy. Ready? When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Translation in the Greek, he's dead. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. You see, what had happened was he died. Verse, verse 7, though, says about three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Here's what's going on here. At the end of chapter 4, we find out about this story of this man named Joseph. Joseph sells some property, comes, and gives it all to the church. And, and so there's this large sum of money. We don't know how much it is. We just know it's a lot. Joseph gives it, and the apostles are taken back by the generosity of this man. And so they say, man, Joe, you are so generous. We're going to give you a new name. And he goes, what are you going to call me? Joe? Joey? J-Dog? And he says, no, we're going to give you a whole new name. We're going to call you Barney. And so they, you know, they call him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. We are so encouraged by what you just did. We're going to give you a whole new identity. We're going to take your name. We're going to write it down in the book. You're going to be remembered for all time because of this act. And so then Ananias and Sapphira, they're like, yo, we want to be in that book. We want to get new names. We want a building in the church named after us. Well, we got some land. What if, we, what if we sold some of this land? But, man, that's a lot of money. But, yeah, okay, here's, here's what we do. Like, if we just sell the land on our own, and then we bring all the money, and we just tell them, well, well we sold it for X, even though we sold it for Y, but they don't know that, then, then they're going to be blown away by how generous we are, and then we're going to be like, Barney, we're going to get new names, we're going to be in the Bible. Isn't this awesome? And they high-five each other, like, great, let's roll. This is the plan. And so they walk up to Peter, and they say, Peter, man, we saw what Barney did. We were so encouraged. We, we, we want to follow suit. We want to do it too. And they say, boom, here it is. And so Ananias, he goes first. <laughs> and Peter receives knowledge from the Holy Spirit. And he's just like, oh yeah? You want public praise, but what you're going to get is public rebuke instead. And then the dude just dies. Crazy. A couple hours later, it says, his wife saunters are in. Hey, you guys seen Ananias anywhere? I haven't seen him in a few hours. Yeah, he's around somewhere, but let me just, while I have you here, let me just ask you a quick question. He said that you guys sold this land and you gave it to us for this amount of money. Of that, is, that, is that the amount? Is that true? And she's like, yep, yep, yep. She's thinking, oh, here it comes. I'm about to get my new name. And he's like, why do you lie, you liar? Boom, dies, falls over, and they go and they bury them together. Imagine church the next week when the offering time comes around. <laughs> They're passing the plates, which we don't do here, by the way. But like, oh, yeah, here, let me see. And somebody looks at you. Oh, was that a five? I could have swore it was a 50. My bad. And people start to kind of maybe get a little fearful. But it says the fear of God in this moment led them to worship. Now, if this story sounds familiar to some of us, there's a story in Joshua chapter 7. 
about this man named Achan who did something very similar, these parallels that follow suit. And the same thing is, is given for us today to study is like, why is this happening? Is this to say if you claim to give 10% to tithe to God, which you are all called to do as disciples, but you only give seven, are you going to have a lightning bolt strike you down? Or if you claim to be generous and to give, but you actually don't give at all, are you a walking dead man? Is that what this story is all about? The answer is no. Think about this for a moment. Is that the church is getting started. And just a few, about months into this whole church Jesus thing, sin begins to try to creep its way in. And so God protects his bride. The church is called the bride of Christ by saying, I don't want anything that's disunifying or to lift or puff up anyone other than the name of my son, the son of God, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. One scholar puts it this way. It says, the sudden and dramatic deaths of Ananias and Sapphira Sapphira served to purify and to warn the church that an act of deceit threatens to interrupt the victorious progress of the people of God. What this story is about is to say is that God takes sin seriously, especially in his church. We can put it this way, is that sin is a deadly serious issue. Our entire faith is built on this fact that sin leads to death, does it not? That because of our sin, because of our wrongdoing, because we are born into sin and we also choose to sin, it separates us from God. That is why Jesus had to die in our place so that we may be purified, so that we may be right, that by grace, through faith, that's the only way we are saved and redeemed. But also I think this speaks to that God is a jealous God. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing that sometimes I think we miss or sometimes we mischaracterize. Let me give you an example. I am a jealous husband. My wife and I, we, uh, we, we, we celebrate our 10-year wedding anniversary this past week. So we've been married 10 years. Some of you are looking at me, it's like, uh, aren't you a little young to have been together and married for 10 years? Yeah, we got married in eighth grade. Don't worry about it, okay? No, I'm just kidding. 10 years. And in 10 years, you know what hasn't changed? Is my desire to be with my wife. That if, if we were just out and someone came up and like I went to the bathroom and some other dude just like slid into the table and was like hitting on my wife, I wouldn't be like, oh, cool, 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 sorry, my bad. I know it's been 10 years, but cool. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll just see you when you get home, honey. Don't worry about it. We'll just, you know, it's, it's cool. No, I would slide up to this dude and be like, yo, I don't care how big you are. I don't care how small you are. We're about to throw down. You get your booty out of here or we're going to have issues. I am a jealous father to my two children. Completely jealous. That if I'm out and about, or if I hear of someone picking on my kids, I'm like, yo, what's the name, address? Yo, we, do, we need, do we need to find this house? I don't know, we'll, we'll go take them out. Don't take care, take care of them. You know, there's no big deal. Like, I have never considered myself like a super either angry or, or volatile person, but the first time I held my son, I kid you not, the first thought that came into my mind was like, oh, I could kill someone now. Because I'm holding this child in my hands. And if somebody ever threatened this precious life, I'd be like, oh yeah, I will literally be willing to go to jail if someone comes after this child. Why? Because I'm mean? No. Because I like to get into fights? No. Not the biggest person. I think some of you are aware of that. But because I'm a jealous person. 
And that jealousy comes out of love, protection of what is good, what is best, what is honorable. And so in this story, God takes sin seriously because he is jealous for them. He is jealous for his church. God is jealous for you. He wants what's best for you. And when sin creeps in, it separates us from him. It ruins the presence of God in our lives. God takes sin seriously because he is jealous of his love for us. Sin not only separates us from God, it not only harms our personal walk with Jesus, but it also rusts the church. That no matter how big or how small, no matter how public or private, sin always corrupts. And God says, I take it seriously. In fact, I took it so seriously that I sent myself, myself and uh, the triune God, my son, to die on the cross so that we may be reconciled for all eternity. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, certainly there was some greed. There was definitely some pride wanting for them to be built up, but ultimately it was hypocrisy. Claiming to live one way externally, one on the inside, their heart was against God. They're trying to inflate their image, and we could say that fake spirituality leads to death. It is not helpful, it is only hurtful. We might be able to put it this way, is that counterfeit Christians get nothing past God. Now, counterfeit Christians, they can lie to themselves and maybe think they're a little bit more spiritual or have it more together than they actually do. Counterfeit Christians can get things past other believers. There's entire men and women who have built ministries for decades who then it's finally come out after 30, 40, however many years that actually behind the scenes, they have abused people. They have, they have demeaned people. They've been abusive. But counterfeit Christians can get nothing past God. You ever meet someone, though, who uh, looks the part but can't act it? Some of you, if you're sitting next to that person, just give them a nudge. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. That could get real awkward real quick. But in, in high school, um, I was on the baseball team in high school. Don't get too super impressed. I rode the bench like the whole time. But uh, So one of the rules, though, was you had to, uh, that we would put on a camp for younger kids and then as the high school kids. So like it was actually kind of fun because when you're a little kid and one of the kids from the high school varsity team comes to your camp, it's like, oh, my gosh. Like these, this isn't, this is, you might as well be playing for the Los Angeles Dodgers or whoever it is because this is incredible. Well, there's this one kid who rolled up to camp on the first day and a little homie was decked out. Fresh cleats, his pants clearly had never played a day of baseball in his life, but they had pinstripes, matching top belt, brand new glove, hat, sunglasses, two batting gloves, two gloves, I mean, a couple bats. Like he had it all going on. And you see this kid get out of his mom's SUV with this little swag, and you're like, I bet this kid's really good. Just the way that he looks, he probably looks like he's got it going on. And this kid was horrible. Like, I don't even think he could lift up a bat, he was so weak. And this was also the kid who didn't really like to work hard. And so we would be like, hey, we're going to have some long toss. We're going to work on strength on our arms. And about the second day into this week-long camp, the kid comes up to me. He says, Coach Eric, my arm is just really, really sore. I don't think I can throw today. And I said, okay, hey, come here. His name was Chase. I said, Chase, come here. He said, let me tell you a secret. And he goes, what's that? I said, you know, when your arm hurts, 
there's something that you can do. I said, have you ever heard the phrase, rub some dirt on it? And he goes, yeah. He says, my dad tells me that all the time. I said, great. Your dad's a wise man. I said, here's what you do. I said, because the, the, the dirt on a baseball field has magic powers. And you pick up that sand and you rub some dirt on anywhere that hurts. And it just, it just heals it instantly. And his eyes get so big. And he's like, does that really work? I'm like, absolutely it does. Well, like 30 minutes later, we're doing base running drills. And he's at second and he's waiting. And this kid like looks around. Makes sure no one's looking. Kind of reaches down. Grabs some dirt. And just starts rubbing it all over his arm and his elbow. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's got it. He comes around home plate, and he meets me in the dug. He says, Coach Eric, I did what you said. I rubbed some dirt on my arm, and guess what? It feels so much better. I'm ready to play now. It's like, yeah, because it's magic. It's easy to look the part, is it not? It's a different thing to actually live it out. You ever had an experience like this before? You pull up to someone's house for a party. And you and, and your spouse or your family, and you just have this conversation. All right, everyone, I know the last 20 minutes we've been bickering, but let's put on a good face as we walk in and pretend like none of this has been going on. You walk into a group situation, and it's just been a doozy of a week for you. How's everyone's week been? Great, it's been so good, so good. Man, like nothing is going wrong in my life. I don't know what you guys are up to, but man, pristine over here. You pull up to church, some of you are like, this is about to get real, right? And, and your know, mom and dad are in the front seat, and you're on there, and, you're, and your daughter's like, hey, dad, look at dog. And you're like, I'm driving here. And then you pull up, and you've been bickering at each other all morning, and you turn around, and the kid's like, I want to do it. Well, because you chose to go to the bathroom 10 minutes after I told you, we don't have time to get a donut. So you're just going to go to class and you're going to like it. And then you pull into the church parking lot. You throw it apart. You all come in, everyone. You know, mom and dad are walking 10 yards apart because they're a little frustrated at each other. And the kids are running in trying to sneak the donut in before anyone. And then you walk in. You're like, hey, everyone, great to see you. How's life? Oh, so good. So good. It's easy to fake things. It's easy to put on a smiling face when you don't actually mean it. Now, I'm not advocating that we need to air out our dirty laundry for everyone all the time. Someone comes up to you, how's it been? How much time have you got? You got like four hours because, man, a lot's been going on here in my household. We like to curate our image, though, do we not? We like to think, people, we've got it more together than we actually do. We like people to think we're more generous than perhaps we actually are. We like people to think maybe we're richer than we actually are. We like to think we're perhaps more spiritual than we actually are. Like how many of you, show of hands, like to pretend you're worse off than you actually are? No hands went up, just FYI. I had a great view up here. Because that's the truth, is on the outside, we want to look great, but on the inside, do we actually surrender our hearts? On the outside, Ananias and Sapphira, they gave lots of money. But we know looks are not everything. Sure, their sin was greed, but even greater was that hypocrisy. They lost that clash and missed an opportunity to be obedient to God. Instead, they were obedient to their flesh. It's because everyone in some form or fashion is happy to be okay with the image of discipleship than actually being a transformed life. You see, this passage isn't about so much finances or money. That's why the amount is left out. It's about hypocrisy. It's about lying, trying to mislead, think we can pull one over on God, but we can't. 
That's why God says this about uh, one of the kings, one of the famous kings in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. He's talking about David when he was being anointed king. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Who is it that's actually harmed when we live counterfeit Christian lives? It's the true disciples. It's the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's God's bride. You see, from here, the disciples, they're going to perform some miracles. They're going to perform some wonders. And then we see this second clash that goes down. We're picking up in verse 25 this morning, uh, still in chapter 5 of Acts. And it says this. It says, then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail, they're talking to the religious leaders of the city of Jerusalem at this point. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people, a.k.a. what you told them exactly not to do, they've decided to still do it. At that, the captain went out with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin, which is like this this group of really, really, really religious elite uh, rabbis back in the day, and they were questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, a.k.a. the name of Jesus. And he said, yeah, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, to which Peter replies that the shoe fits. Peter and the other apostles replied that we must obey God rather than human beings. How it breaks down the religious leaders, this is a recurring thread in the first chapters 2, 3, and 4 of the book of Acts. They don't like the fact that there's another person that people are called to follow. There's another beacon of hope and love and truth outside of themselves. And the religious leaders back then, they weren't just like normal pastors today. They had power, they had influence, they had authority politically. They were extraordinarily wealthy. They were esteemed arguably higher than even governors or the most high-ranked officials of that day. And they say, we don't like the fact that these little podunk kids from that podunk area of, of, of Galilee are telling people that they don't have to listen to us anymore. They're ruining our image. They're taking away our prayer saying, wait, you don't need a priest to get to God? And they're like, nope, because Jesus died and he, if you believe, and then he lives inside of you and his spirit is given to you. And they're like, oh, this is way different, way better than, than we anticipate. So they don't like this. And they give, they try to use Peter and John as this warning. Warning, if you do what they did, if you believe what they did, if you live like they do, if you teach what they teach, you are going to be thrown in prison. So they got thrown in prison. An angel of the Lord delivers them and says, you need to go back and do that preaching thing. And they said, okay. Ananias and Sapphira, they face this internal clash for themselves. The religious elders and leaders of that time, they faced a public clash, but both clashes were against pride and hypocrisy. Because the religious leaders back then were called to not just be beacons of rightness, but also beacons of goodness. To turn the people of God into the salt in life to care for each and every human being. And the view from our story is easy to probably pinpoint who was genuine, who was not. Now, on the outside back then, it would have been very difficult to tell, but from our text, we see who was actually true in this instance. And so the question for us today is, how do we know if our faith in Jesus is counterfeit or not? Now, 
there's three areas that I saw in, in regards in this text about this. There was a fear of God versus a fear of man. There was whose image are you promoting and lifting up, and then what truth are you following? And so this is, forgive me right now, but this is the cheesiest thing I have ever come up with in writing a sermon. This is by far the cheesiest thing. Yeah, you can read this for him. So I don't even want to say it because it's so cheesy, but I think it works. Is, is your faith counterfeit or counterfeit? Yeah, some of you are like, that's real bad. Yeah, I know, okay? But here's what it is, is how do we counter, counterfeit Christianity? Is we gotta remain fit. This is just, I, I just gotta move on. We're gonna dive into it. But three things, F-I-T, number one, is we fear God and not man. That we live in a fear of God, not a fear of man. In this passage, we see two types of fear. That when Ananias and Sapphira died, then it said the people of God who feared them, it led them to worship. But the soldiers feared man, therefore they wouldn't do what they were commanded to do out of fear. One group fears God and worship, the other group fears man and they run and they hide. It's because fear is a part of our worship as believers. It's a part of our wisdom we are called to maintain. The book of uh, Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That the fear of God is when we take the awe and the strength and the reverence for who he is and we mix it with the intimacy we're called to have. So what does it look like to be one who lives fearing God, not fearing man? I believe it's always being willing to do what is good and right, to be obedient when it's difficult, and even sometimes to follow God for the sake of others when culture says otherwise, when culture wouldn't hold it against you, when culture might say, hey, you don't have to really worry about that thing so much because we got, we're been significantly easier to just go with the flow. That living in a fear of God, I think, needs us to live in a way that sometimes looks very weird to the world around us. That could mean turning the other cheek as we're called to do when you want to fight back. That could mean doing our best to hold our tongue when the world would justify a backlash. That sometimes means really, really going against what culture is saying, well, this is the new truth. This is what's relative for the age. But as disciples of Christians, this is where we take root. Let me give you two examples. Today is a very big national holiday for us. Tomorrow we will celebrate. It's a holiday referred to as Juneteenth. It's the day set aside for us to remember the freedom of captivity of slavery in our country. And there's probably certain people that if you reflect on it that come to your mind, and I would venture to guess that this person comes to your mind. That when I think of freeing slaves, this is the first person that comes to my mind. This is Harriet Tubman. Many of us know her as the woman who sacrificed her life on several occasions in order to establish the Underground Railroad. She was born a slave. She became an American abolitionist. She escaped her own slavery and then made 13 missions to rescue, they think, anywhere from 60 to 80 people from slavery, including some of her family and friends. She then used this network of this anti-slavery movement to create the Underground Railroad. And one scholar puts it this way about, well, why did she do this? 
How does someone put their life on a line and in a socially acceptable thing to just gloss over it or say, maybe, maybe somebody else will take care of it? She says, no. I have to do something about this. One scholar says it's crystal clear that Tubman's Christian faith tied all of these remarkable achievements together. One of the other things that, that we are remembering today is today is Father's Day. And we said this is the day in which you, on Mother's Day, we started this generosity initiative for you to come back today and fill up those baby bottles for us to support a local mission partner, the Living Alternative Pregnancy Resource Center. Because we live in the fear of God here at this church that we believe and we support life. Womb to tomb, every life is valuable. Every life is made in the image and likeness of God. And that's not the most culturally acceptable thing to say. But we fear God and not man. Number two is I. Inflate Christ, not your own image. Ananias and Sapphira, they lost the internal clash because they wanted to get remembered. The religious leaders and elders, they lost the external clash because they thought their image was going to be deflated. Both looked great on the outside, but they were actually being deflated on the inside. But not the apostles. They say, we obey God, not man. We lift up his name, not our own. A couple of verses that come to mind on this is Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Galatians chapter 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But verse 4, check this out. The power of the grace of God in this is, instead, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you into the interests of others. Inflate the image of Christ, not yourself. You know, a few months ago, um, there was someone who was known as a beacon of kindness in the world who it came out that actually this person was not. This person has a net worth of probably well over a half a billion dollars popular uh, daytime show. Her name starts with an E and ends with an Ellen. Ellen DeGeneres uh, started a campaign called the Hashtag Be Kind campaign. And reports came out a few months ago that she is actually the exact opposite. So much so that it led to the canceling of her show. She lost jobs, she lost opportunities to work because behind the scenes, she was actually doing the exact opposite. It's on record that she was overtly harsh, demeaning towards others, overly demanding, illogically brash. She's on record of telling people, hey, you can't look me in the eye because I am above you. One elder just put it plainly, or one, uh, one editor put it plainly this way, is that the biggest common thread that everyone told me is what goes on behind the scenes is a far cry from what the show represents. It's easy to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk it. And let's just be real for a quick second. Is it not easy to paint a picture of not the real you? Isn't it not easy to always pretend you're someone you're not? 
I mean, I think churches are some of the worst places for this because we think we have to have it all together. We think that when we come in those doors and we come in here into this room or at Urbana or our student ministry or kids ministry, wherever it is, that we have to have it all together because if not, I don't want them to kind of figure it out. I don't know if they're going to let me back. And that is so, so, so just backwards, right? Because the reason we're here in the first place is because we recognize we don't have it all together. We're here in the first place because we say, man, I have made a mess of life. Sin has gotten a hold of me, and I have handed and surrendered that over to Jesus, and I want him to handle it. And that's what I want to say to each and every one of us is let's not get caught in that trap. Even as disciples, we're tempted to. Even as we're trying to follow Jesus, we get tempted to put on that fake facade. And again, I'm not saying we go in and we just start airing it out left and right. We're passing secret notes to people. What did you do this week? I want to know what you did. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is you know who you can be real before and nothing's going to change? Jesus Christ. You can humbly bow before him. In fact, you should because he knows everything about you. You can fake it past me. You can fake it past people in your group. You can fake it past people in this church, in your community, your job, your own family, even your spouse. But you can't get it past God. But the beauty of God is that he says, I know it all. Come to me. I know it all. I love you. I care for you. I died for you. Lay it at my feet. Lay it at my altar. Being a disciple means living free from being fake. Close with this. This is our T. F-I-T, transform your life with the truth of God. We are all being discipled by someone or something. What are you transforming your heart and mind with? What truths are you chasing after? The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, not in view of God's wrath, not in view of God's justness, not in view of God's righteousness, in view of God's mercy. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. As we continue to worship this morning, we're going to go into our time of communion. So if you have your communion elements, I invite you to get those out. If you haven't had a chance to grab those, you can make your way. There's four stations in the room, two in the front sides, two in the back as well. But we gather here to remember that we fear God and not man that we will always be a church and hopefully we will be raising up disciples that do exactly what Peter and John say. We obey God, not man. That hopefully we get to be the church where we inflate the image of Christ. That in our humility, we look to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. Because it's not about us, it's about Jesus and his name and his glory and his message. But then T, we look to transform our minds, which can then lead to transforming our hearts with the truth of his goodness. 
So as we enter into a time of communion, what I would love for you to do is remember two things. Number one, remember what the cracker and the juice represents. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And that's only through that work that you are redeemed and restored. But number two, I invite you, because a timer is going to come on the screen for about three minutes. Not about three minutes, it's three minutes. That you can be real before God. And for some of us, it might have been a very long time since we've been real before the Heavenly Father. He knows everything. You can't hide anything. You can't get anything past Him. You can't be counterfeit in front of God. So why try? And instead, He's standing there. The power of His Spirit is living in you to say, not just repent, but come to me. Let me restore you. Let me make you whole. Let me give you guidance. Let me give you wisdom. And so as these three minutes pass, don't just remember the sacrifice, but remember that the sacrifice creates this bridge for you to be with God eternally because he loves you. That our fear of God should be this sense of awe and intimacy to say, God, you are the God of the world. You are the God of the universe. You spoke and everything was created and yet you want to know me. You want to be with me. You've extended me love and mercy and grace. Be real with God this morning because we don't want to be a church nor do we want to be disciples that we try to fake it till we make it. Rather, Our faith is about what's already been done through the work of Jesus that now leads us to do for the power of God. We'll leave you to worship during this time.